You handled that very well, Sherry. Handled what? Well, when I walked in here, the little room, your office that we use to record these podcast episodes, you were brushing sand off the bottom of your feet. Uh-huh. And uh, you said, huh, I wonder how that we got sand in, on this hardwood floor. Because I had just cleaned it yeah. a couple days ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, you were very polite about that. We have sand on the hardwood floor because I went for a little run the other day in the snow Yes, it snowed here in Denver in September, early September even, <laughs> after a 95 degree day on Monday, it snowed on Tuesday, snowed all day, snowed hard, and I went for a run and I got like gravelly sand stuff stuck to my shoes, and then the next day I went to put my running shoes back on and just kind of got this gravelly sand everywhere, and you knew well, you knew no. full well that... <clears throat> The sand was probably for me when you got no, stuck to your feet. We have kids that come in here and craft. Well, one child now that comes in and crafts. Well, so I even, didn't know. Even when I told you that it was for me, you handled it well. You didn't get upset. Well, Proud of you for that. I just went and put on shoes. Yeah. That's why I wear shoes in the house all the time. <laughs> well, it's always a mess on the floor. Well, it's. I just think it's. I just want, you know, we'll come back to this. Believe it or not, we're going to come back to the mm. sand in my shoes. That's how interesting this episode is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Hold your breath, folks. <laughs> we got to go to something even more interesting now, but we're going to come back to the sand on my shoes. But I just, it's just one of many, 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 you know, examples of the fact that I'm still kind of a lazy, um, you know, dim-witted I don't know, kind of typical guy, honestly. I, uh, I, I, I knew that sand fell off my shoes, and I was like, ugh. And then I went up about my day. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go get the broom, or... I actually didn't think, is oh, that like your this is annoying that the sand... Comes? Yeah, I didn't think this is annoying that the sand fell off my shoes. I thought, oh, Sherry's going to be annoyed that the sand fell off my shoes. I didn't even... It didn't bother me at all. But I don't blame you that it annoyed you. Anyway, we'll get back to that. Today is 9-11, the day that we're recording this, and I'm and we're going to release it on Monday, which would be what, 12, 13, 14th. I, I mention it be, for a specific reason. It's a really somber day. You and I have, as we've been running around this morning, caught glimpses of the the ceremonies on television. We heard taps playing, and we've heard speeches. And, you know, I don't think anyone in our generation or older could possibly forget that morning or where they were. It was just as bad as it gets. And it's kind of symbolic, I think, of overall what's going on right now in the country between, you know, COVID, we've, we've kind of gotten used to the fact that this virus is spreading and we're all trying to do our part and... You know, then we get frustrated because it seems that some factions are not trying to do their part, and there's, you know, just more bickering and back and forth and hatred. But, you know, the reason COVID is particularly, you know, kind of renewed on the, oh no, this sucks chart is because 
the projections they're showing now are that more people are going to die between now and the end of the year. So in the next three and a half months than have died in the last seven months since the thing started. So it's going to double its intensity in the, between now and the end of the year. It's both it's hard shocking. to believe and super sad, just super sad. Yeah. And we've got this presidential election that's by far the most contentious thing I've ever seen in my lifetime. I never imagined that we would backslide this far as far as not being able to get along with our neighbors and not being able to discuss things cordially and the fact that there's just been no compromise in over a decade now. It's just, it's unbelievable. And the holidays are coming, which are a stressful time. And I'm sure everyone like us, my, my mom just said to me the other day, my parents always come to our house for Christmas. And my mom said to me the other day, We don't know what to do. They're in their 70s. They know that we are actively, you know, we're wearing our masks, but we're actively participating in life now. And the idea of them coming to Denver, not only the flight, which is a risk, but being around us who, you know, we we take more risks than they do um, is terrifying. So they, you know, they probably won't come for Christmas. So the holidays are going to be for, I think, most people really way different than they normally are. Yeah, yeah. The holidays are a stressful time for drinkers and especially drinkers in sobriety and early sobriety because it brings back all these memories of fun times, drinking wine around the Thanksgiving table, a thousand parties leading up to Christmas. You know, for us, we always did mimosas on Christmas morning. That was to kick it off. Um, I just know the holidays are a really stressful time for people that are sober, especially early in sobriety. And you got winter coming, which means short days and cold days and a lot of darkness. And for anyone who, like me, needs to see the sunshine to pep up their mood, it's it's a tough time. Yeah. What'd you just whisper? (laughs) Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Like it or not, and we didn't believe it, right? Because it's been 95 degrees for some record number of days, over 90 degrees for a record number of days this summer in Denver. But then it was 30 and snowing for 48 hours. So we believe it now. Winter is, in fact, coming. Well, I know you didn't watch Game of Thrones, and we had a conversation about that on the podcast once about... Yes, you pornographic heathen. (laughs) That was their line. And I honestly... Winter is coming? Yeah, because there's like all these like um ice king that like has the zombie um, army and you know so i think that that when you were saying that it was kind of like this all apocalyptic thing as they're saying winter is coming and snowflakes in some of the scene are starting to come down and they're terrified because all of these like frozen zombies from this you know outer land are coming and that's kind of how i feel like when i heard the news about the the COVID increase of cases and France and England have um, popped back up with cases. So, you know, on the rise and they're restricting. It's kind of like, oh, we thought we were going to see the sunshine again, but now it's really coming. Apocalyptic is a great word. When I first flipped the television on this morning and the, before we heard anyone talk or looked up at the screen, Taps was playing my first thought was, oh, God, what happened now? 
I did too. I, I kind of lost track took of me the, a second. the date yeah. because I've just not, I've just worked a lot this week and I haven't focused on the date. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're, we're wondering what's going to happen next. It's more, when is the next terrible thing going to happen? Mm-hmm. And I, so the reason I mention all of that, this is like a long prelude into a more positive conversation we want to have because between all of those factors and the last few podcasts that we've done have been really heavy. We've been in some really heavy conversations with listeners and readers. We've been in some really heavy conversations with people in our Echoes of Recovery program. And we are determined to have a more, a slightly more uplifting conversation still around the topic of alcoholism and recovery and relationships today. And so that's what we're going to do, Sherry. We're going to we're going to try to be a glimmer of light, a uh, glimmer of hope, I guess. I talked about all those bad things that have happened, and I did not include the fact that uh, there was sand on our floor in our office today, which is also another bad sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> well, that would be bad, because we are nowhere near sand if we had yeah. sand blowing in. Crushed from gravel, the I guess, is what that technically yeah. was. Yeah, just dirt. Yuck. But I bring it up because I bring it up again because talking about gravel on the bottom of my feet is so interesting. I'm sure the listeners are dying to hear more about it. But, you know, as much as things have changed for us, there's a lot of things that haven't. I'm, I'm still, I think, very typical. I think I'm a very typical guy. I've probably just, because of all the work and research we've done and good fortune and conversations and met the right people... I've just got some insight that the vast majority of people don't. And I don't want any credit for that. It isn't like, um, you know, I'm some deep thinker because I'm I'm not. I'm a normal thinker. You're just an all-time thinker. I'm pretty curious. I'm pretty You're, curious. Yeah. But, th- but there's no magic to what we've come across. It's just hidden from us by culture and society. And we get often feedback from people, you know, oh, I I read what you write, Matt, and I just wish my husband could get there. I wish he felt the way you do about these things. I wish he could see that. And sometimes the, the feedback seems kind of discouraged on the part of the person that we hear from, almost as in, I wish he could, but he never, ever, ever, ever will because it's not possible. And I'm here to say it's possible because there's nothing special about me. Um, <laughs> why did that make you laugh right away? Like no <laughs> pause, you started laughing. There's nothing special about me. <laughs> nothing special about you, Matt. Um, just circumstances have brought me to this kind of aha discovery, and that's what we want to talk about. I want to talk about for a minute how not special I am. When, you know, I wrote a list because I was like, I, I, and it actually didn't take me long to convince myself. You know, sometimes I can get a little bit of an ego and I can be feeling kind of proud. And so I made this list and I don't feel proud at all right now. I feel I feel pretty, you know, average to subpar. I got cut from the freshman basketball team. Now we moved. So I'm going to I'm going to make my excuse You're now. Your excuse. We moved my freshman they year. They didn't know my glory. We my moved, well, no, glory. see that wasn't it. We moved after tryouts and I went you know, to the coach and said, hey, I just moved, so it shouldn't be held against me. 
can I have a, like a tryout? And so I had a early season tryout and he was like, yeah, you're just as bad as the bench warmers I've already got. So <laughs> no thanks. So might have made the team if I'd been there at the beginning of the year, maybe. But that was the end of my basketball career, my long and illustrious middle school basketball career. <laughs> well, Dude. and you topped out at like five nine and a half, five ten. I think for a while I was five nine and a half. I don't know what happened to that half inch, but I am <laughs> definitely five nine now. So it's not like you were, you know, a center because you were not. Tall. I was not the center. So you didn't offer was, anything else. I was a point guard with mediocre ball handling skills. So, <laughs> um. I could shoot if we wanted the guys to get rebounding practice. So, well, so yeah. Have, did you, for you good at free throws? Hey, I've got a whole list okay. of mediocre things about me. We can't get stuck on the first one. Um, I, I, so I stuck, stuck with soccer. I was, I was an okay soccer player. I, uh, I played varsity, you know, my top junior and senior year and, uh, I was a starter my senior year, but I was like the 11th guy on the team. Like, you know, if somebody had a good day in practice, I was missing the next start because that guy was going to leapfrog me. So nothing special there. Really loved soccer, but mediocre at best. I, in high school and middle school, I was like a B plus, A minus average kind of guy. Applied to to five colleges and got into like, three or two with like a wait list on the third one like I mean you couldn't be more average than I was just kind of middle of the road all in the big 10 area when you applied or no did you like I I think Cal Berkeley was high on my list actually not not for political not because I was a lefty and I wanted yeah, to go like now I have a be a surfer or anything no it was or, like I had no idea about politics I just knew it looked like a beautiful area and you know, Midwestern weather versus California weather and Jersey seemed weather. like something worth trying out. Yeah, we were in Jersey for high school. Speaking of which, I had like one really good friend in high school and this other guy that we let like kind of tag along with us that was really kind of annoying. But mostly just like one good friend in high school, you know, a couple girlfriends that could easily have been swept away from me when... Some better looking guy wanted to, and I knew it. Like somebody with a little more special. Yeah, yeah. There was one guy that took a girl away from me, and I can't say what he said to me on this podcast. Um, It was yeah. I I don't know why I even brought this up. Anyway, it was easy to 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 see that I was just middle road mediocre in college. You know, I've, we've gone on and on about my, how my drinking exploded in college. I was far from alone. All of my friends were big drinkers, kind of prioritized drinking over anything else. And, you know, I graduated with the best possible grade point average for me, not best as in academically superior, just symbolically the best. I, I graduated <laughs> with a, a B. 2.99 grade oh point my average. gosh. I mean, if I had... Opened a book. If, if, I, if I had gotten like one more answer right on one test, that might have been a 3.0. And I always told everyone it was a 3.0 because you round, right? I learned that in math class. But it was a 2.9. It was so perfect for me. Just like, just subpar and way below you know, potential. 
So I got this marketing degree and I wanted to get a marketing job. Like I wanted to do marketing analysis. I wanted to be working with statistics and understanding why people make the decisions they do and work for this big firm to make powerful decisions on place product placement and how are we going to you know, tar- find the target audience and go get them. And I didn't really want advertising, but I wanted the behind the scenes marketing stuff. But marketing majors who graduate with a 2.99, guess what they do? I don't know. Oh, come on. Take a guess. Um, displays at Target. Uh, okay. Okay. Close. They get a sales job, okay. which is what many, many, many undergraduate, sub, you know, kind of mediocre GPA people get, regardless of what their degree is in, they get a sales job. I mean, if you're an English major with a 2.99, you're probably selling something. <laughs> <laughs> I know that isn't what you set out to do, but, you know. The Shakespearean scholars aren't really looking for your input with that 2.99. So so I got a sales job. I remember, this is a just a little side note, I remember that the Ernest and Julio Gallo people came to my school to interview. And that was the hottest interview. Like, it was hard to get on their interview list. Everyone wanted to... Isn't that a cheap wine? Yeah, we didn't know that. We just knew it was wine. <laughs> so, we, I mean, Budweiser's a cheap beer. And everyone would have worked for Anheuser-Busch. I have a really good friend who did work for Anheuser-Busch. Still does. He had a great career. But everyone wanted to work for Ernest and Julio Gallo. And I didn't get that job. And then later when I went back to to school to recruit for the place where I did work, I met the Ernest and Julio Gallo recruiters. and, And we had conversations. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is a terrible job we're recruiting for. You're... You're like the lowest level display clerk, like you just said. You go around to the grocery stores and fight for shelf space with the grocery store manager. Like, hey, instead of being on the bottom shelf, can we be on the second to the bottom? And that's what you do and restock. That's what a a sales job for Ernest and Julio Gallo. So I was actually really quite glad I didn't get that job because that sounds horrid, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, I started this career and actually... Had some success despite all the drinking I was doing. Got promotions and raises and got moved around the country a bit. But here's the thing. Do you want to know what the secret of my success was? You you might know. Maybe not off the top of your head, but this oh, is not going to be what you've told to our you. kids. Our exactly. Kids. You just do what you were asked to do and be on time. Yeah, that's it. It's nothing, nothing major. You just be on time. And do what you say and you're going to do. Do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. And do what was asked of you. Yeah. Turn so in like, here. I was less of a headache for the bosses than the other people were, and that was huge momentum for my career. I mean, how sad is that? Yeah. But it's true. I didn't necessarily sell more than anybody else. I just turned my stuff in on time and didn't have a bunch of customer complaints, and my boss was never trying to track me down, and that's it. That was... That paved the road to success. You want to talk about mediocre? I was clearly in a mediocre career if that's what what was demanded of someone to be successful. Then we moved to Denver and bought this bakery that we ran for 15 years. And, you know, I'll never forget the beginning of that saga. The gentleman that we bought the bakery from, who we still both adore... We're, we're not in contact with him. We've lost touch. But he still lives outside of Boulder, 
just a wonderful, wonderful man. Very much a hippie. You know, loved the process of making bread way more than he liked the process of operating a business. But when we had that very first meeting with him and he didn't have chairs for us to sit on, he just took some buckets and flipped them upside down and said, here, sit on these buckets. And we saw the front display area of the bakery was dingy and dirty and <clears throat> had, had holes a plant where inside, inventory was missing. I think the plant inside the bakery was like a... I think that yeah. was a health code violation, and somehow we avoided that. There was also a like a flower covered flag, but like just take it and shake it once in a while, and you'll get the flower <laughs> off. But so you and I sat on those buckets, and I was like printing dollar signs in my head. I was like, if this guy, if this guy can survive, we are going to make a zillion dollars in this business. So I had a pretty big ego going into the bakery. That, uh, that didn't pan out super well. Um, we were, again, mediocre at best. We definitely drew some lines in the sand about things that we weren't willing to do that a true capitalist would have done. I am a true capitalist in theory. I believe in capitalism. I'm just not very good at execution. So there were things that we weren't willing to do and things that we did kind of so, so well. Um, made a bunch of big mistakes as far as expansion and spending money and investing. Actually, I wouldn't call any of them mistakes. Everything was just mediocre. Like nothing crushed us, but nothing, you know, we didn't thrive. 15 years, we had two really good ones. Uh, probably five really bad ones. And what does that leave? Eight mediocre ones, something like that. So that was our bakery career. You know, nothing to brag about there. The the only thing that separates me, I think, from most people is that I don't mind talking about my bad stuff, whether it's my alcoholism, um, you know, even the sex stuff about how I was obnoxious. And this is a good time to mention our new book, Sherry. We have a book coming out in just a week and a half from when this will be released. Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriages, available for pre-sale in Kindle ebook and hardcover on Amazon right now. But the prelude to that book, the very first pages that you'll read, talk about my last night of drinking and specifically my, you know, sexually deviant behavior. I I was a pig. I was a gross pig. And so hopefully that's enough intrigue to make you want to buy the book. Um, it's not all about sex. Right. It's just sprinkled in here and there. Thankfully, I'm sure you're thinking. Yeah. But I don't mind talking about that stuff. I don't know why. <clears throat> and I think that's the only thing that separates me from the rest of the mediocre population. And I don't mean to insult the rest of the population, but I, I think I'm just kind of an average dude. What I do now is not average. What I do now is really weird. And and unique, and it this inability to censor myself is, I guess, a blessing and a curse. I know you think it's a curse quite often by the <laughs> face you're making, but that's the only thing that makes me different. Otherwise, I'm I'm just as uh, average and moderate as anyone else. Now, when it comes to the word moderate, when I 
first, let's start talking about sobriety. When I first started to get sober, you know, first of all, talk about mediocrity. Let's not forget that I had 10 years of trying and failing to get sober, 10 years of I'm going to not drink, and then I would relapse and come up with a new plan. Here's my new plan, Sherry, for how I'm going to control my drinking, and I would try again, and then it would get bad, and I would quit, and I would quit for a while, six months twice, nine months once, various other short periods of time, and then I would, oh, oh, I thought of it. I figured it out. I figured it out. I'm going to drink a glass of water between every drink. Everything is going to be fine now. Still got super drunk, just spent all my time in the bathroom. Missing the toilet, too. Yeah, well, drunk guys miss the toilet. Yeah, then you put a lot of water in there. Yeah, and then we we don't clean it up either. It's like sand on the office floor. We're like, I didn't even notice that happened. I think you tried to always blame our boys because they were potty. Heck yeah. Boys, it's their fault, not mine. It's not all those beers. So, So, 10 years of that circus, right? And then I finally... And making progress in sobriety, like serious sobriety. But here's the thing. Early on, and when I say early on, I mean for like over a year, all I wanted was to be a moderate drinker. Even though I was starting to come to grips with the fact that that wasn't in the cards for me, I was never going to be able to drink two and quit. It was always going to be all or nothing, and the all wasn't working, so I had to succumb to the pressure and choose the nothing. Even even when I admitted that to myself, all I wanted was to be a moderate drinker. I wanted to be a social drinker. I wanted to be able to, to control the uncontrollable. And that went on for quite a while. And I think, honestly, I think that's where a lot of drinkers in recovery get stuck. And I mean, I'm talking AA folks that are 15, 20, 25 years sober that I've talked to. They'll still say... You know, I can see a bottle of whiskey and not want it anymore or or not. It doesn't give me pangs of desire or, you know, this indescribable pull to drink it. Um, but so I can leave it, but I still, you know, if other people drink, that's their business. And all I can focus on is me and I'm not going to worry about anything else. It doesn't make me upset when other people drink. I don't have any kind of reaction to the bottle itself. Well, I, that's where I was for a long, long time. But at some point, you know, I, I got kind of angry about alcohol. I got angry about how alcohol had lied to me, how I thought, like everyone else in my family, I'd just be a moderate drinker and everything would be fine. I thought drinking daily was fine. Nobody had told me that it wasn't. Nobody had told me that I could get in trouble with having cocktails every night after work. You know, I, I kind of got mad about big beverage, big the big beverage industry. I don't spend a lot of time in that space because they're just capitalists, and I'm not anti-capitalist. And if they're trying to make money, then they're trying to make money. And I don't, I don't necessarily blame, you know, Anheuser Busch for putting sexy bikini clad women in their in their Budweiser commercials. I mean that's that's their deal. That's what they're trying to do to make money. But I got more angry that it's everywhere around us, that it's just so socially accepted and, and that alcohol is is the the way to go um in our culture. And the anger kind of built and built and built. And 
eventually I learned to assign the blame, not to Anheuser-Busch, not to the deregulation, not, you know, not to the fact that uh, prohibition didn't work, not to the government. I, I started to assign the blame to alcohol and say, look, this isn't something to be aspired toward. Being able to drink two drinks a night and then leave it, that's not that's not a goal. Alcohol is a poison and it it negatively impacts our brain chemistry, whether we drink a little bit or we drink a lot. And it's really it's it's something to be vilified. So unlike that twenty five year AA old timer who looks at the bottle of whiskey and says, Not for me, but I don't care if anyone else drinks it, I look at that bottle of whiskey and say, Let's throw it away. That stuff's garbage. Doesn't matter who you are, it's gonna hurt you doesn't matter how little you drink. It's going to hurt you. There's no redeeming qualities. And I really developed this this hatred for alcohol, which really changed everything in my life. And eventually along the lines here of me talking about and writing about it, you you developed that, that anger and hatred toward alcohol too, didn't you? Yeah, I think that it gets a lot of people in trouble and it's really just, you know... Not something that should be toyed with. And I've seen a lot of people hurt by it, either by becoming an alcoholic or abusing or drinking and driving. and Just very dangerous. I look at it like I would any other drug. Yeah. Yeah, and so this, this kind of anger at alcohol and no redeeming qualities, that was something that I sheepishly worked into writing about. I... You know, I didn't, I didn't just, you know, stand on the rooftop and scream about how I was right about it's all alcohol's fault at first because that's not the predominant attitude in the recovery community. The predominant attitude is, you know, stay in your own lane, deal with your own stuff. For me, alcohol doesn't work. I'm not going to worry about other people. I'm not going to worry about the overall impact of alcohol on the world or society don't worry about me and I'm going to choose not to drink today and then tomorrow I will again choose not to drink today I hate that but I slowly worked into this philosophy that alcohol is bad for everybody and I was afraid when I started talking about that I'd get backlash but some people support it some people don't understand it some people think I'm wrong that's fine. That's a good mix. That's good for a mediocre guy who's used to being average. I got some people on my side and some people against me. Yeah. But then here's the interesting thing. Because I really feel like this last 10 or 15 minutes of soliloquy of mine has not been terribly interesting. So I'm going to try to try to yank this out of the ditch. Um, we started hearing the stories of so many other couples and how alcohol impacted their marriages. And it was exactly the same as what we had gone through. There were stories of, you know, the the drinker, the person like me drinks too much. Um, The next day can't remember most of it. There's an argument about whose fault it was. The drinker sometimes apologizes. Sometimes the the blame stays on the non-drinker and there's no apology There's a lot of licking of wounds for a couple of days. Then there's pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and try to, you know, move on with a normal life, a normal marriage. And then, oh, you know, I know last weekend I drank too much, but this weekend I won't drink too much. And then right back to drinking and the cycle just repeats over and over. 
And I thought that was just something that we had gone through. But as we started to listen to our listeners and our readers, and especially once we we started the Echoes of Recovery group, which, by the way, you can learn more about it, echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com, for all the loved ones of the alcoholics. When we started to hear more from those folks and other listeners and readers about how how their story, their alcoholic story with their loved one who was a drinker was exactly the same as ours. It made me realize, you know, this this whole idea that it's alcohol that's to blame, it's true. Because, you know, you can't, you can't just say that all of these people are bad people. Like, the, the numbers just don't add up. I don't believe that people are are naturally evil. I don't believe that people are that way. I believe that it takes something to turn them that way. Sometimes it's childhood trauma, childhood neglect. But there are just too many cases of people who otherwise were living average lives, got a regular Joe kind of job, making enough money to support your family and enough money to go on a vacation or two and enjoy your weekends. And But something was terribly wrong. It, too many of those stories for those people to be what was wrong. It had to be the alcohol. And so really cementing our opinion that alcohol was the problem, not these people, these people are not the problem, really, really helped us come to where we are and realize what we've realized and and try to spread this message. I know I said this was going to be uplifting. So far, not terribly uplifting. Maybe we can yank that part out of the ditch too. The, you, we can't emphasize enough that when it comes to alcoholism and recovery, the alcoholic can't just quit, but then still wish that they could be a moderate drinker. They can't quit, but have this like longing and regret. I mean, you can at first, it takes a while, right? Mm-hmm. Early sobriety, you can. But you can't quit and not really just embrace the devastation of alcohol. You have to quit and put the blame in the right place. You got to clean up your own mess. If you've got DUIs or financial loss or if your marriage has been wrecked beyond repair, you got to deal with that. That's your stuff to clean up. But it's there's nothing wrong with assigning the blame where it belongs and saying, this poison did this to me. This poison did this to my relationship. This poison wrecked our lives. And I think that's the first key to getting past it. And because of... I'm not I'm not trying to blame AA. I think AA has a place and has does have some good to offer, but it also has this kind of atmosphere of you know, you're allergic to alcohol. It's something you can't have. If you do it'll kill you. Stay away from it. But don't worry about its overall role in society. I think that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I think if you've just longed to be you know, like if you're not assigning the blame to alcohol and you kind of long for that wish to be a moderate drinker I th- or, oh, one day I could again, I think you're just setting yourself up for failure and you're just going to be miserable because you just can't find any joy no matter where you look because you think the joy still lies in the alcohol. Yeah. Um, And I think if you're just with that mentality of like, I'll just mind my own business Minding your own business and not trying to encourage someone else not to drink. I mean, 
think about the accidents that happen when a friend doesn't speak up and say, hey, you shouldn't drive. Yeah. You're way too drunk. Get a cab. Or even forcefully get their friend not to drink. I mean, think of how many, you know, car accidents have been by a drunken driver and how many lost lives or, you know, injuries yeah. that are life devastating and just, or bad choices. Yeah. Bad choices. So if you're not blaming the alcohol and if you're staying in your own lane and not being an advocate for just your friend's health and the potential mess that they could get themselves into with other people, you know, like stepping in and being, a not a moderator, but, or a, uh, you know, just stepping in. Yeah. I can't think of the word. An advocate? An advocate, yeah. I'm trying to think. A deal breaker? No, I'll think of it. How about a kneecap smasher? No. No. You think you're going to drive home after drinking? No. I noticed your kneecaps are working awfully well. Yeah, no. I wasn't thinking anywhere like that. I was thinking more of a... Okay, I'm glad you didn't go right to violence. That's good. Yes, I didn't. I I was thinking the actual opposite. But... You know, like, you can't just stay in your own lane and pretend like that's going to rid the world of alcoholism. Staying in your own lane seems like a very selfish way to be. Like, like I can't think of, what if it was everybody's been staying in their own lane with all of the political unrest and the, um, you know, I'll call it civil disobedience because mm-hmm. they're, we are in a very turbulent time right now in America with just the yeah, equal when opportunity. Went, when and I went through the rights. litany of stuff, I didn't even mention the, you know, Black the, Lives Matter well, and both, both the peaceful protests and the riots, which are both things that are mm-hmm. very different one from another. Right. They're both happening. I didn't even mention that in the litany of, of troubling times. Yeah. So, you know, if you see something wrong, you have to speak up. And I think alcohol falls under that category. You know, I... Absolutely. You know, you can host an event without having alcohol in your house, you know. I mean, you don't have to have wine if you're not a wine drinker just for your guests. You could say, I don't drink wine, so I'm not going to. Or, I don't have it in my house. So know? so against culture, though. I know. It takes, it takes a lot of, you know, bravery. Once you've been doing it for a while, you're like, this doesn't take any bravery. This is silly. Well, it does the step but it out does at the first. beginning. Yeah, I mean, and I think right. that's how it is with anybody who's you know, kind of fighting a cause or yeah. you know, fighting for a cause, I should say. Yeah. But he I guess here's here's the point to drive this all home. What what we do, other than my unnatural willingness to talk about things that should probably not be talked about, other than that, I'm just a mediocre guy. Just a regular guy. You know, we have a one story bungalow house in Denver. Um, we work real hard. Our kids go to public school, like just average as the day is long. Nothing special about us. And if we can do it, anyone can do it. I get, you know, we get feedback that, oh, I wish my husband could just, I wish he could do that, but I don't think he ever will. The reason he never will is perhaps that he's locked into this mindset of, I can't drink, I accept that, but I'll never love that. 
And I'll always want to drink. I'll always wish I could be that moderate yeah. drinker. I mean, that's like wishing that I could be a ballerina. At age it is. 49 exactly. and 170 pounds. I'm not going to be a ballerina. Yep. You are not. I am not. And that is not an insult, Sherry, and but you are not going to be I'm a ballerina. I'm not. And I. Am and you've okay. come to grips with that. I've come to grips with that. So there's okay. so much power in coming to grips with reality. Well, and that's just where. Acceptance. That's right. And that's where the uplifting part of this comes. The. But for the spouses that are listening to this, the loved ones of alcoholics that think that their situation is hopeless, and I don't know, maybe your situation is. I understand that there are there are situations that have gone too far and they are not it is not possible to pull them out of the ditch. I get that. But if if your spouse is sober but things aren't getting better, I really firmly believe that it's a mindset shift that is the difference between me and that person. You have to embrace the devastation of alcohol, assign the blame properly on alcohol, recognize that it's not your spouse's fault. There was a long time in sobriety, Sherry, where I still thought, yeah, my alcoholism was the problem and I was a jerk, but she was kind of a jerk right back. And, you know, some of this lies with her. No, none of this lies with the spouse. This is all the fault of alcohol. I've said this many times before, but it was such a peace-generating, warm-feeling, wonderful moment when in when long-term sobriety, around a year sober, I realized I wasn't suppressing the instinct to call you bad names or to pick fights where there no disagreement needed to be. I wasn't holding back on my true feelings in some kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde transmorphism, which is not a word. I wasn't trying to do any of that. Uh, those feelings had gone. I didn't ever think of you in terms of a bad word that I could say to you. I didn't think of you in terms of, you know, something mean that I wanted to say or, or getting upset with you when there was nothing to get upset about. That that went away. That went bye-bye. And that, that was a huge realization for me that alcohol is the problem. I'm not the problem and alcohol brings it out. It's not a smoldering fire that alcohol is the gasoline poured on top of. There is no smoldering fire. I'm not a jerk. I'm not a bad person. I'm just an average Joe, mediocre guy. And the, the, when people realize that about themselves and stop wishing that they could be that moderate drinker and stop wishing that they could figure out a way to control the uncontrollable and just say, it's over. That stuff's bad. That stuff's poison. I would no sooner drink Drano than I would drink alcohol. That's that ripping off of the Band-Aid and giving the relationship a chance. It doesn't fix anything, as we've talked about. There's a ton of patience that's going to be required. But recognizing that your spouse... It, you know, in my case, and in the vast majority of cases, I'll say it: your spouse is not a bitch. <coughs> uh, that's that's really important to your chances of recovery. And if your spouse tells you that they feel a certain way, or that, um, you know, either when you were drinking or in early sobriety, things that you're doing are uh, are not normal, are not acceptable are not helping the relationship to thrive. If you're the drinker, you should listen to them because your brain is fucking whacked. And even in sobriety, 
that healing process takes a long time. And it's your messed up brain cells that are the problem. And if you stick it out and you're patient and you do the work, it can come back and fix itself. And, you know, do that. Be willing to do that. Don't lose your relationship before you're willing to to do the work and let things change. There's nothing special about me other than my weird desire to talk about untalkables. And apparently make up words that aren't words yes. today. Yeah. Your special talent is making up words. Also, I'm curious now that you've just dropped an F-bomb and said the word bitch. Like, why at the beginning of the podcast you couldn't say what the guy said to you in high school when he stole your girlfriend? I don't know what could almost be worse than that, but... It's pretty bad. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He stole the girl from me. Yeah, I either. And he was with her for a while, and then he dumped her, and she and I got back together. Oh, And the first thing he said to me when she and I got back together was, how does my, insert word, taste? So I'll let you... Yeah. It's pretty It's pretty crass thing to say. probably weren't even doing anything like that in high school, so it's pretty bad. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. it was a really crass, really crass yeah. comment that I'll never forget. And even though I would say... And you have a bad memory, so... Even though I would say you. naughty words, I won't put them... In order. In, in the order so that that okay. really crass thing to say comes out. Yeah, I was just really surprised there. You kind of scared me when you dropped the F-bomb. Well, I'm angry. I'm angry about but this yes. stuff. I'm angry because, you know, coming to this realization is not as hard as people make it out to be. But when we don't even try, then we can't ever get there. Yeah. If we just want to walk around and woe is me, I can't drink, everyone else can. But it looks like such a party. Though I know that you said that you're a capitalist, but don't you ever get angry a little bit about the marketing ploy, the analysis, the way they trap people into thinking that having this alcohol in their daily lives after a workout, let's go drink a low-carb beer. Don't you think any of that doesn't even make you mad? Because it makes me mad. It makes me disgusted that everywhere I look, bus wrap, buses are wrapped in Denver with some local, te- you know, tequila and vodkas and things like that. I mean, and Denver's a mecca for, you know, breweries and. You know, I believe that the solution is education. I believe that this has to be a cultural shift. So I don't believe that the government plays a big role. I think the government gets involved in education, and that's good. PSAs and things like that. I think I think of tobacco, the government got involved, you know, not by making tobacco illegal or making cigarettes illegal, but by being involved the... with how like here here's here's a this is a really interesting fact that I learned very recently. Everyone knows that you can't advertise cigarettes on television commercials. That's Anymore. actually not true. You can advertise cigarettes on television commercials. The regulation and I think it's just like an FCC regulation. I don't even think it's a like a federal law or anything. But the the regulation states that if you, because we know of the cancer-causing results of tobacco, if you put on a 30-second Marlboro commercial, Marlboro also has to pay for a 30-second PSA on the dangers of smoking. So what happened early on was the tobacco company said, all right, whatever, I'll do that. So they still advertised, but then the next commercial had a picture of somebody, you know, with like a hole in their lip from chewing tobacco or something, some real grotesque picture. 
And what the tobacco companies realized is the PSA was doing more damage than the advertising was doing positively, so they pulled them. So well, they still run the PSAs about smoking. They do, but the tobacco but companies not, they don't have to pay for them. Well, if they do, they it's because of litigation that's happened since then. Well, that's what I was thinking. They were. I thought that but, a certain amount of dollars had to be spent in educating and I think it does. preventing smoking I think you're because right. to sell because they can. But that's everyone why thinks that, are so expensive now. Everyone thinks you're not allowed to run tobacco commercials on television. That's not true. You can. You just have to pay for the PSA that follows it. I'm I'm in favor of the government getting involved in certain kinds of regulation. Like for instance, like as we move f- closer and closer to the government paying for our health care, and certainly the government pays for tons of health care for people who do do not have health insurance. I think that. Th- if, if we assign certain health risks to alcohol, mm-hmm. that the booze companies should be taxed to pay for the uninsured people who have right. to be treated for those conditions. It's not hard to figure out, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but how many billions of dollars we spend in emergency rooms dealing with drunks that are uninsured. Or how much that money police sh- officers have to go and deal another with good example. alcohol you know, induced fights. The, the and, money it takes to, to pay for that should come from the alcohol companies. I believe. Right. I don't believe we should outlaw alcohol. I just believe. Why well, did you say if outlaw alcohol? If, if their just... product is causing the problem, you know, I feel the same way about sugar. If sugar is causing diabetes and we treat people who are uninsured for diabetes, the money that it takes to treat them should come from people that are pumping sugar into all the food. Mm. That's very capitalistic, honestly. Like, yeah. let's okay. let's bring the. So, like, from, when the people get done with their workout and they go to the bar and they drink their low-carb the beers. Michelob Ultra, the Michelob they, Ultra. Their I didn't want to most... name drop. But then the next commercial that's run is them in the emergency room or in a wreck or at a funeral. Kind of like how the oh, cigarette it, companies yeah. ran an ad and then the next ad had to be the downside. Like, Yeah, I, I think that's something reasonable to consider. I think that would probably make the big booze companies do the same thing the big tobacco companies did and said, yeah. oh, that advertisement is not worth it for the negativity that's of the next it. one. I, for me, that's where I feel like, because it's so, it's so ingrained in our society. Like, you don't know what to take to somebody's house, and you don't know if they drink or not, but you still take them a bottle of wine, because, I mean, oh, you know. Yeah, what else are you going to take for a yeah. hostess gift or host gift? Right. Totally agree. And so that's what needs to change. There needs to be this cultural shift so that when people are getting sober, they can see sobriety as not just a benefit because I was wrecking my life and I've got to to salvage what's left of my integrity and my, you know, my future. But I want people to see sobriety as an aspirational thing as this is great. You mean I'm not going to poison myself anymore? I can still live a long, healthy, flourishing life. I can maybe be a little less mediocre. This is super awesome. And that's the way it feels to me. And that's what this, that's what the message is all about. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, if you're looking at what Sherry and I have done and you're going, I could never, our relationship could never get there. My husband, honestly, the comment we get most often is my husband could never get there. They can. It's really not that far. Yeah, I you don't have thought to be you a superstar. Always... You don't have to be an awesome basketball player to get there. You can get cut from your freshman team and still get there. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't my fault, I got cut. <laughs> sort of mumble. Yeah, I definitely didn't think that you would be where you are 
now, you know, 15 years ago or 12 years ago. Where'd you think I'd be? Well, I don't know. I guess I should say it like this. Even when you quit drinking, I didn't know that you weren't quite an asshole. Yeah. Oh, I think that you were very open. And because you do have a, you are a thinker and you are curious and you want to learn, you know, that might set you apart a little bit different from others. But as long as you can keep an open mind. I think think most people want to learn. I, I just don't think that they, I think that it's so ingrained in our society and our culture the places where alcohol is so prevalent, I just don't think anyone can see past it. I think they look at sobriety as a death sentence as opposed to, you know, this awesome opportunity because everything from advertising to your friends, to your family, everything around you says, come on, man, relax and have a beer. Mm -hmm. Nothing says, come on, man, relax and don't have a beer and wreck things. Yeah. Yeah. Have some iced tea. You can get there. If you're the drinker listening, you can get there. If you're the spouse of a drinker, they can get there. They can. It's it doesn't take doesn't take anything more than a two point nine nine GPA from a Big Ten Midwestern University. Didn't go to Harvard to get my two point nine nine. Cal Berkeley wanted nothing to do with me. Actually they waitlisted me. I didn't get in. I was pretty upset. So that's it. All right. Tried to be uplifting. In this climate and on 9-11 and all, um, that's about as uplifting as we can get, I think. But there's some uplifting chapters in our book, Sober Evolution, available now on Amazon. Thanks for listening. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. And keep that hope alive. And we can't wait to have you listen to us the next time on the Intoxicated Podcast. Podcast.